What ho, and welcome to Listen to Lillian. That's me, your host, Lillian Crawford, a freelance film critic and writer with a particular interest in women's relationships with British cinema. This podcast is paired with a Substack newsletter, which you can subscribe to at listentolillian.substack.com, following my research and cinematic adventures. For this episode, I'm delighted to be speaking to my friend Clemence Robur, whom I will invite to introduce herself shortly. The film she's brought with her is the 2005 adaptation of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, directed by Joe Wright. Before we get started, have a listen to the rather absurd original trailer for the film, which, yes, features a score cue from Love Actually. He's here! Is he amiable? Is he handsome? He's single! I believe so. Oh my goodness! Everybody behave naturally! Mr. Collins, at your service. In an era when marrying a rich man was the most a woman could hope for, Elizabeth Bennet was way ahead of her time. I singled you out as the companion of my future life. Sir, I cannot accept you. Don't worry, Mr. Collins. Tell her you insist upon them marrying. Oh, please. You will have this house. I can't marry And save your sisters from destitution. You cannot make me. <laughs> from Jane Austen. The beloved author of Emma and Sense and Sensibility. That is Mr. Darcy. He looks miserable, poor soul. Miserable he may be, but poor he most certainly is not. Do you dance, Mr. Darcy? Not if I can help it. What on earth have you done to poor Mr. Darcy? I have no idea. I do not have the talent of conversing easily with people I have never met before. Perhaps you should practice. May I have the next dance, Miss Elizabeth? It would be most inconvenient since I've sworn to loathe him for all eternity. You may. He's so rich. By heavens, Lizzie, what a snob you are. This fall, Focus Features presents the story of a modern woman. Mr. Darcy is engaged to my daughter. Do you think this union can be prevented by a young woman of inferior birth? Who discovered the one person she cannot stand is the one man she may not be able to resist. Did you expect me to rejoice in the inferiority of your circumstances? From the first moment I met you, your arrogance made me realize that you were the last man in the world I could ever marry. Think him a handsome man. Yes, I guess he is. From the producers of Bridget Jones's Diary and Love Actually. He's been a fool, but then so have I. We are all fools in love. Kira Knightley, Matthew McFadden, Brenda Blevin, Donald Sutherland, and Judy Dench. You have bewitched me, body and soul. I thought she didn't like him. So did I. So did we all. Pride and Prejudice. Good morning, Clemence. How are you today? Hi, uh, I'm very good, thank you. Um, Would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Tell us about how wonderful you are. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) That's your words, not mine. Uh, (laughs) So my name is Clem Clemence. I am a cultural programmer. I've lived in London for seven plus years now. And I work primarily in multidisciplinary arts, so theatre, um, circus, cabaret, drag, but I also had an interest, uh, a very intense interest in cinema for a long time, both personally and professionally, and, uh, and yeah, I worked in different cinema places, and that's how we got kind of to know each other, although I <laughs> met you because I, I stalked you after University of Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> 
Are if anything to happen? And uh, me from 2018 would uh, not believe that I'm this right now. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. Um, I mean, we, we sort of bump into each other a lot at the BFI um, and we did um, a little thing together at the Institute Francais mm -hmm. when you were mm -hmm. working there. So yeah, um, I've been wanting to do an episode of this podcast with you for, for some time because Yay. you have fascinating <laughs> views on film. Um, and <laughs> I um, had no idea what film you were going to choose when I asked you. Um, so yeah. you have, in fact, well, would you like to set up the film that we're going to be yeah. talking about? Um, so initially, when you asked me to come, the first immediate answer was uh, the Stephen Fears adaptation of the Dangerous Liaisons for Liaisons Dangerous, which felt very... Um, topical because of uh, the adaptation of French book. Uh, and I, I felt confident having studied it for the French A-levels that I would mm -hmm. have something interesting to say about it. <laughs> um, but after maybe a day or two, I realized that I wanted to talk to about potentially one, if not my favorite British film, and one of my favorite films for sure, for different reasons, which is uh, the 2005 version of Prejudice by Joe Wright. Um, for very, maybe not mostly cinema-based reason, but just because it was highly influential in my life. And I strongly believe that if I hadn't seen it at age 13 in a midst of hormonal explosions and uh, emotional turmoil, I wouldn't have come to the UK in the first place. Because right. I, I kind of fell in love with everything and with the infanticide version of the of Britain and England that it gave us. So, mm. so voila, <laughs> that's probably the reason. That's so interesting. I mean, this is something that we can we can talk about, but it's one of the reasons why the film is sort of set slightly earlier than than the publication of the book is because um, the um, Joe, Joe Wright and um, uh, Deborah McGark were particularly interested in sort of the influence of the French Revolution on the British aristocracy and how it sort of made them quake in their boots. Um, whereas you're sort of fleeing from France to come to the British aristocracy. I mean, yeah, uh, absolutely. You, I think it's it's hard to convey how much of the appeal of Britain or England from abroad and from France especially uh, comes from a very, very contrived, like, you know, it's Lizzie in Bath rather than Emily in Paris. It's a sort of right, yeah. fantasized version of what it is. And obviously it doesn't necessarily, uh, or if at all, meet what it used to be or what it is today. But mm. like the the BBC accent, the uh, Regency novels, all that really works. <laughs> it's magic on a young girl's mind and... and uh, it's ah uh, yeah I think it, there is as well an, an element of some society that feels so pretty and and quaint and to some extent attached to an idea of class that is established rather than implied right. that you know for um uh, in France we obviously banished uh, the aristocracy in the in the royalty. <laughs> famously so and bloodily so but obviously it didn't go away and I think that it's sort of I, when I was younger I, I saw it as a, a quaint thing obviously my views have changed but it felt also both very odd to have 
kept this sort of stratified society with very very uh, contrived ways of dealing with class and and wealth and property but also felt almost a bit simpler to deal with mm-hmm. so all of this and I'm saying this retrospectively because I, I genuinely think that then I was just in love with Mr. Darcy and wanted to dress less like Lizzie. But I think also right. all of that okay. cortege of things um, influenced my my attraction to the thing, right? Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, I... But we can we can brush about this. Yeah. <laughs> Let's no, we talk we, about we, the film. We, we, we can. Um, I'm just, I'm just, I suppose I'm just one of the things that particularly when, um, you choose a film that's one that is very personal to you and one of your favorites and a film that you've sort of, um, and I find this with guests on this podcast and when I am on podcasts myself and I'm asked to choose a film is the sort of difference between people who choose a film that they experienced very recently, a film they maybe haven't yet seen and want to do something that mm-hmm. is new to them and and do sort of first impressions. And, very brave. Uh, <laughs> yeah, very brave. Um, I always ad- admire that. And I, I quite like it when it's a film that I sort of haven't come across before. Um, but with Pride and Prejudice, it's it's quite, quite different because it's something that, that is so special to a lot of people, um, particularly to to a lot of women um, in, in Britain and, and elsewhere. Um, how how did you come to it? Did you was this the first your first interaction with Austin, or was it your sort of tell me Absolutely. about your journey? <laughs> so um, I distinctly remember going to see it because so it came out seventeen or so years ago, seventeen eighteen, right? And I was just about 12 I think Mm -hmm. and um, I was very much till you know a mother's girl but at the same time in a rebellious phase and I remember my mom saying oh there is this film out do you want to come see it Um, but I don't know maybe I don't I can't quite remember if it was this specific day that was crossed at her and I wanted to be rebellious or whatever but I I kind of dragged my feet right I I felt like no I don't want to see this it whatever what is this you know whereas you know I had never really (laughs) refused to go to the cinema before but I remember specifically being annoyed that my mom wanted me to see this right and uh and we went to see it at a, a very iconic cinema in Paris because that's not because it's pretty, but it's just one of the only few multiplexes we have within Paris. And it's the one where people get the data to know if a film is going to work. Mm. So both for the industry, but that obviously came much later. And and just as a cinema, it's a very famous one to go. And it's underground. It's kind of grotty. Um, but it's it's massive. The screens are massive. They are like 26 rooms. It's just gigantic. And so we went to see it. And obviously, I was transformed mm. uh, I was introduced to your scene I read the book right after that and uh, I was just starting to learn English as well so you, you know there's all the thing but I came out of the cinema from this sort of bubble of light and and music and and nature and I was in the middle of this underground place in the middle of Paris that is just so rotten as a place <laughs> so I think even more to the film it, it had it to this sort of like uh, emotional cocoon that it had been in for two hours or so right. so that was my first uh in- interaction with it and I became very 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 obsessed with the story mm-hmm. so on top of reading the book I obviously watched the BBC adaptation and I, I seeked all the uh, adaptation being the Bollywood one there's a very old 19 
tens or twenties, black and white version, you know, mm. I don't know. I, I was so engrossed with this and yeah, like, I don't, you know, it's kind of the chicken or the egg situation. What was I engrossed with it? Because I, I felt strongly, um, related to Lizzie as a character and attracted to a Darcy type right. love interest or yeah. am I uh, no uh, you know did I imprint my personality on between her and right, I think uh, yeah. But, um, yeah so it that was the my eternal question isn't it yeah. <laughs> well, which, yeah. which way around it is um, and how formative these sorts of stories are on us and our sort of desires and identity. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the fact that Austin has sort of continues to do that is is um, is quite astonishing. Um, yeah, yeah. And you know, obviously, I rewatched the film for the podcast, and it struck me, struck me, struck me, struck me. Yeah. <laughs> see the French. That's where I can't feel like damn it. See, here with the girl verbs, but yeah, it really really impressed me how modern it still is and obviously there's a lot to say about Joe Wright's specific adaptation and how modern it is but all of them could be modern characters and obviously take out the urgency side and the really needs to be get married or, or whatever but it's still so like Mr. Collins could be a modern day pickup artist who just doesn't know anything about women and romance so you know and yeah she's still I mean it's such a cliche to say that she was such an amazing uh analyst of social class and cues and right. and relations but it's just yeah. true like she's just mass- and amazing that, that, does that love extend to austin's other novels and other adaptations or is or is it very specifically pride and prejudice uh, it's a good question i mean no i think the fact that she she's still adapted today and still discussed and and also of how I many i meant for you sorry oh for me um uh, I I don't think I have had such a strong bound with the other ones, but I I did I I, I obviously did have the uh, the usual journey of <laughs> the pride and prejudice being the the getaway drag, and then you move yeah. on to sense sensibility and Emma and uh, I started yeah. with Emma. Emma was my Ooh. yeah. <laughs> Emma's my yeah. favorite. Yeah, Emma Emma's my favorite. Emma. Oh, even though. I, I, this is the interesting thing about sort of connections is that I don't really, I don't connect to Emma Woodhouse. I think she's a, I, I sort of have, have a certain endearment towards her. I, I, maybe more so towards Harriet. I just, I just think that book is just absolutely scintillates. It's just so funny mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and witty. Whereas, yes, I suppose if we were to talk about the characters that I sort of most connect to and identify with, I mean, it is, there is a cliche to be to it being Elizabeth Bennet, but I suppose it it, it probably is. Um, I mean, I suppose I suppose that she's probably your favorite of of the sisters. It's it's interesting because that's something I noted when I I rewatched is that um, I don't know. I mean, again, she can all the egg situation, but obviously Lizzie would be my favorite. Fine, let's let's. Put it out there. It's true. I'm a cliche, and you know why? Why not? She's yeah, a geeky as, girl. As am I. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but at the same time, I find that we. How can I? I put it in a uh, a good, interesting way. But like the idea of ranking the sisters is very much a thing that 
you know, you're Lizzie or you're a Jane or to some extent you're Mary, you can be a Lydia. Mm. Uh, depending on how clairvoyant you are on your own personality, you, you realize that you have traits in some of them. And obviously, right. you know, but um, I realize that it's something that is very typical of, I, I, I don't want to say a patriarchal society, but like this idea is that right. women are very typical characters that they Absolutely. need to fall in in cases right and and that's they they are almost always at competition with each other but with those types so you can't be mm -hmm. a lazy and a jane because you know you can be pretty and bookish and reclusive and you know whatnot uh and in the book and in the film especially this sort of permanent ranking is imposed on on them yeah. by their mother by society by even by the reader we are men we are made to believe that we should mm -hmm. uh, relate to one more than the other or be one more than the other. But the characters themselves, like the sisters, because they love each other so much, because they have such complicity and intimacy between them, kind of go beyond and refuse that. And in the film, that's what like appeared to me so clearly. He, sure, it's a love story and sure... Um, Karen Knightley and Matthew McFadden are, are amazing at conveying this sort of right. uh, uh, role attraction they have, but the the sister love is is so beautiful in the film mm. and so mm -hmm. conveyed, and it goes beyond the sort of idea that you should choose one of the sister to attach to you. Yeah, right. I found that it's so sweet and so true both how Janostin wrote it in the film and all the film in she wrote it in the book and how the film conveys that that sure it's what society is and what it should be but yeah. actually they don't care about that they love each other and they they value each other like you know mary for example who plays the piano and who's a reclusive very shy very serious mm. almost severe uh sister uh at some point you see that lizzie is very um a bit ashamed or like kind of try to tame her but at the same time she loves with her and she she still loves her and you can still she protects her and she appreciate her qualities mm -hmm. it's not like they're not pit against each other because they want it that's just you know anyways that's me going on attention i think no but... you're right um and i i think that that ranking is sort of comes out throughout and, it, and there's a sort of um assumed ranking of the sisters it's this it's very similar to to little women i mean i suppose that's partly completely the, the greta gerwig adaptation came out there's the sort of discussions of of the the sister the march sisters sort of reminds me very much of of the bennett sisters although of course the march sisters are all almost too perfect <laughs> Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, they're too perfect. Amy's rather naughty, but then she's very young, and you know they're all they're all sort of uniquely wonderful in their own right. Whereas mm. Jane yeah. Austen sort of dared to have some of them just be not so nice, like, <laughs> silly I mean, and, and a bit yeah, bickering. And Lydia and Kitty are little ships, and you know, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And, and Mary is Mary gets the short straw in everything, really. Um, which I I suppose. I do have an affinity towards her because of that. I mean, particularly because she's she's sort of the musical one, um, and mm. being being told by her father that you know just just, playing, you, you, you've delighted everyone quite long enough, and I, I think that's that's quite a relatable thing to be told. Um, 
Yeah, and I, yeah. I actually want your opinion on this because I, mm. I read someone say that this specific scene when her dad tells her how for playing, uh, so you see the other girls uh, waiting but also laughing. And I, I always assumed that they were laughing because um, the singing was a bit not great and, you know, yeah, yeah. but the analysis that was online said that they were laughing because she was just so very imposing and necessarily, mm, you know, yeah. and I, I really never read that they were like, I read it as them waiting in line to play. Just right, that yeah, yeah. it would be weird to play the piano at a party for so long when there's a, a band yeah, and that's, that's, that's correct. That's what's happening there. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. not whatever, <laughs> whoever that was online is wrong. <laughs> they are wrong. The internet is always wrong. Absolutely not. <laughs> maybe, I mean, maybe that would be a, a modern thing of sort of mocking a girl for playing the piano at a party, but not in, not in the late yeah. 18th century. I don't think. I think it's pretty standard um, entertainment. Um, where else are you sort of going to get the music from, I guess? Um, the new dreadful adaptation of Persuasion with um, I didn't watch Dakota, Dakota Johnson um, has has um um the the sort of beethoven music being played on a gramophone it's just bizarre um so i i um no. i would i would avoid um that <laughs> so yeah the sort I'm, of the, I'm I, 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 idea that you could just sort of listen to music on its own um although there's a lot of beethoven in the in the score by dario marianelli which is sublime in oh, every so, way um so which sort of the piano played by Jean-Yves Thibaudet is sort of based on Beethoven piano sonatas and it just the way he sort of takes those very minimalist pieces well they're not minimalist but you know because that has connotations I mean yeah. just sort of minimal simple in yeah, yeah. instrumentation they're very simple absolutely just yeah. piano and then swelling that throughout the sort of strings is just wonderful when that dawn that uh, the, first piece uh, comes in uh, oh uh, my god da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm not gonna um, sing but yeah no yeah. it's it's a absolutely wonderful wonderful song. And, and the riff on purcell as well is one of my favorite scenes oh, in the whole in so the good. whole film um, and, and the actually the, the scene itself like yeah. there's so much to talk about this scene because it is gorgeous yeah i rewatching actually i was really really surprised to see how quick in the film it is it's like 30 minutes in and there's so much to say about the pacing of the film that looks both seems very slow because you see walking and you know lots of uh, long long uh nature shot but also so much happens in the two hours like they really really go for it anyway so uh the scene happens when bail um Basically, the uh, kitty uh, has kind of made <laughs> really organizable at Netherfields, and they so the, the ball is happening in this gorgeous white, sick, you know, uh, swan themed almost uh, explosion of lights and candles, and it's just a gorgeous place. I mean, every time I see it, I wish I were there. This sort of, and Lizzie has those pearls in her hair. Everything is so perfect, right? And so you have this long shot that follow them through in the house and that alone deserves 10 minutes of, of analysis oh because gosh, it's, yeah. there's so much to say. But eventually, uh, so we see Lizzie and Jane come through and uh, they, Lizzie is looking for a uh, power more of the moment, the wicked Mr. Wickham. And 
while she's looking for him in the house, she's being followed by Mr. Darcy, who is following her, uh, like who wants to, uh, you know, uh, touch her or talk to her. And there's sort of like suspense and distance between knowing that Elizabeth will probably <laughs> Mr. Wickham because he's not there and Darcy will get to Elizabeth and they will have to talk. Eventually, they bump into each other and he offers her to dance and they dance. Mm. And so this personal adaptation and we, we work is playing and you have just the beginning of the, the violin line. And while they're dancing, they are kind of dueling with words. And at some point, the music swells and everyone else disappears and it's only the two of them and they're dancing. Mm. And it's very West Side Story. That's what I wanted to say. It is West Side Story. Yeah, that's yeah, so, exactly what it is. It's, it's, the rhythm is, you know, the kind of the same. Like I, I'm talking about the uh, 1950s version, not the Spielberg one. No, of course. Uh, <laughs> we don't was, talk about yeah. Spielberg. Never again, Spielberg. I love the I love the Spielberg version. But anyway, okay. uh, and you know, Wait, it loses the, that magic element for sure. But yeah, like the sort of. You know, they dun, 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 dun. that's what I story. Yeah, but no, they, I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's not personal. But they <laughs> the disappearance of everyone else and the the almost sick uh it, it, emotion and erotism between them while they right. dance. Uh well, that, well that he does that moment Joe Wright, I mean, is this is a similar thing in Anna Karenina, where you have the the waltz scene, which is um, similarly sort of lavish, and um, again Marianelli is sort of using this this very um, sort of Russian waltz, sort of very romantic waltz, and then you have um, um, you have you have the two of them sort of dancing together, and then everything else just disappears, and it's like. <gasps> Oh my God! It's, it's like his, his, his little code for like yeah. these, two, these are the two you need to keep your your eye on. Eyes uh, on, yeah. But at the same time, like it's it's a fairly kind of almost cliche or, or easy uh, cho- choice of of a direction, but it's just so effective at conveying so. how intense can a dance be. And mm. and obviously throughout the film, you have this permanent. Um, obligation for them to to remain calm and civil and proper and touch is very very um codified and and spare and, and separate you know and that's why the few moments where they actually touch or right. being briefly or voluntarily you know are, are so um so special and 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 how do you say um uh, carefully crafted they're not just bypassing, right? You can't touch right. bypassing in virgin England, especially when you're a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what makes that dance even more important and be more central. And is yeah. it central though? Do you think it's central? I find it erotic, but it's not central. Um, I think there's an element of it. I think there's an element of awakening sensuality yeah. and sexuality in there, particularly for Lizzie, because she, well, Kira Knightley was 20 when she played her in this. Uh, I mean, the ages are sort of played with. Uh, this is something that Joe Wright was very much wanting to do, was to sort of, because the last time a film had been made was in uh, 1940, and he was looking at this film where you had like these 
40 year old men with these very young women um and it just seemed unrealistic that they sort of were discovering these things for the first time um whereas i think that what what's really fascinating about this film is that it's sort of it's coming at a time when the heritage film and the British heritage film sort of Merchant Ivory um, adaptations, even even sort of, we might even extend that definition to sort of something like Ang Lee's Sense and Sensibility, which we, I did an episode on with Laura Venning um, last year, which um, is very much in the sort of more traditionalist vein. Mm. Whereas Joe Wright is making this film, this is his first film at a time when what's really popular is like the sort of British rom-com that's like working yeah, yeah, yeah. thing stuff like Richard Curtis movies um like Love Actually and and Bridget Jones Diary and so on and it's a sort of move towards combining elements of the heritage film with that of this sort of um youth rom-com oh, genre that's becoming yeah. very popular in Britain um yeah, absolutely. Which and could think... have been disastrous. I mean, it could have been sacrilege, quite frankly. I mean, if you'd, if you'd, well, you could have ended up with what's, what, what's that, uh, like the Jane Austen book club or whatever, or, or oh, something. Oh, yeah, so, the Elizabethan Diaries, right? Oh, the, my God, yeah. The YouTube um, Something thing? like, yes, no, that's it. Elizabethan um, Diaries. And sorry. something like that, or, or, a sort of version of like Clueless or um, a film like Clueless done, but set in Regency. It's something like Bridgerton. That's what I really want. It's like something mm. absolutely heinous, something that is so vile and vulgar and mm. so away from what Austin was doing. Um, I can't sort of put out enough bile against things like Bridgerton <laughs> because <laughs> I just think that it's it's distorting the the meaning of what Austen is doing in her writing and trying to sort of modernize it in a way that actually spoils the simplicity of it and 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 you know the and kind of the, takes away the, the fact the, the, the sensuality yeah, yes, it was exactly. a little more down. Like, you well, know, exactly. and um, what, rewatching, uh, I had this, you know, the I, I consume too much Twitter content, but uh, there's, mm. you know, the phrase like iPhone face, and uh, that would mean that the oh, actors. Yes. But the guy had the, iPhone face when she yeah, was making And they couldn't play, uh, you know, in a, a, a period drama because they look too modern. And uh, right. okay. I was trying to see if the actors in the this. Pride and Prejudice, Jesus, Pride and Prejudice uh, adaptation would have "quote unquote" iPhone face, and to some extent, you could say that Claire Knightley is, you know, looks very modern. Uh, you know, her face is very modern, but I, I didn't, I don't know. Um, I, I, it never really shocked me. Oh, it well, really... so, I mean, so, I mean, the 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 greatest adaptation of Pride and Prejudice is, is of course. The BBC. No, it's not. <laughs> I'm no. no. Okay, okay. Well, you're wrong, but we'll move on um, <laughs> because it is the greatest, and in fact, it's probably the greatest adaptation of any work of literature um, in the um, cinematic mode. <laughs> and Jennifer Ely is is much more to me, Lizzie Bennet. But, she, yeah, she she absolutely embodies her in that series. Um, as well, I mean. 
I find Matthew McFadden more attractive um, than Colin Firth, but that doesn't mean that I believe that I don't believe that Colin Firth is better. Mr. Darcy, of course he is. Um, it would I would I would um, get in all sorts of trouble with my mother if I didn't say so. Um, <laughs> hi, mum. Um, <laughs> I think that yeah. That, that that what you mean about the casting is that the, the, those actors do have a more sort of regency look to them in in the BBC version, mm. whereas these actors do sort of. It's quite funny actually because a lot of the sort of production discussions were around trying to make this a sort of grittier version of Pride and Prejudice and making it a bit more muddy and so on. I mean, okay, they get they get wet because there's a lot of rain um and there is some mud on like the the, the hem of their dresses but it's mm. not oh it's no not, it's it's yeah we're not talking like bronte countries sort of, um, <laughs> no, no. it's it's definitely sweat. on its way to bridgerton in terms of the like this sort of yeah. how pretty they all are but I'm going and, to let and... you talk about the BBC one now because um, you clearly don't like it as much, and I would like to to hear why. Um, okay, li- listen, I I don't dislike it. I I love the story, and obviously the again the pacing because they have six or seven hours to tell the story. Um, they are much more faithful to the book, and they spend much more time discussing, uh, you know, salons and activities in the society around Bath uh, and Somerset uh, which I, I really liked in the book but I I think that's literally when when memory and subjectivity come into place for how appreciative you are of the work because I saw it after I saw the Joe Wright one mm. and I don't think I would have had such a an intense liking of it if it had been the opposite first of all because i i never we didn't we obviously don't have the bbc in france and bbc Mm. adaptations are not a thing so i yeah i saw it as more of a yeah kind of dated adaptation and then i saw it much much later again maybe two or three years ago and i had a renewed appreciation for it but Mm. i didn't fall in love with it that's like interesting. I, I wonder. I wonder if there's a certain sort of visual literacy that comes from the fact that I grew up with a lot of sort of BBC dramas more so Absolutely. than I would have done films. Actually, I would have seen more more of those. So may, maybe that's why I have a greater attachment to it. Absolutely. Um, also, the fact that it's what six hours long, which yeah. means that you can actually have the whole book in there rather than sort of excising one of so much i mean i i I, my frustration watching the film is so much is gone (laughs) but i suppose that's that's inevitable when you're trying to sort of put it into a a two-hour film yeah i mean i i do think they've made a a very good job of it in considering the constraints that uh, like okay uh as i was saying earlier it does go extraordinarily fast and things like i the one moment where I'm just like, please take a beat is when, uh, so Mr. Colin has just made his uh, proposal to Elizabeth and obviously mm. she cries and her dad tells her not to marry him. She comes back home. She's just been proposed, refused, her cousin, the whole implication of it. She comes back to the house and then on the stage you have Jane and sisters with the letters that says that Mr. Bingley has come back to London and that's it. It's done. Like, mm. you know, 
and I was like, oh my days, it would never, like, I, I would need an extra, maybe one of those moments that you have in a film where she's kind right. of reflecting, you know, this sort of, but that's probably if, the- Everything does happen very quickly. I think very that, quickly. That, that, that might be part of the- um, Appeal. The, well, I, well, maybe, no, I think, it, I think it's, it's, um, it's an issue for me with the film. Mm. And I think it's why, why to me it will always be- Less good. Less good. Um, I mean, if I don't have six hours to hand, then this is what I will go for. Um, and I, 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 do. I think it's so gorgeous and it so justifies itself as a film, which I know mm. is such a boring thing to say, but uh, so many sort of um, period dramas and adaptations are very sort of described as being very stagey and that they're, they're not sort of quote unquote cinematic. Um, and um, I don't think it's that, necessarily. That, yeah. I don't think it's necessarily a, a cliche thing to say because, for example, talking about your writing, like Emma Karenina, which we mentioned before when we we decided mm. to do this film, um, I adored it visually. It's so gorgeous, and the theater choices. I mean, the the race scene, and I saw it once in the cinema when it was released, and not since. And since I still have those scenes in memory, like the mm. papers flying, everything. It's it's gorgeous. But the emotion is not there for me, and I love the book. It's probably one of my favorite books, and I, I well, couldn't yeah. feel a thing when she dies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, but then she dies, and I was like, okay, sure, fine. And so what you were saying about the film mm. justifying itself, I was like, well, with as as much as it achieves visual almost perfection, in a sense, it doesn't mm. necessarily justify itself to me, and I kind of whereas Pride and Prejudice does. And yeah, that, I agree the extra layer of music mm. and perfection and emotion and it, everything you want to say. Yeah, my big problem with the um, Anna Karenina is the um, the sort of inevitability of Anna's death I find really weird. Like the sort of constant um, foreshadowing of her suicide, yeah. I suppose, because the, the assumption, you know, the one one is already so aware of it that you constantly have her sort of seeing trains and mirrors and things. I just find that really quite ridiculous although I do think it's it's it is rather gorgeous um not as gorgeous as this film there's a sort of strange sort of smeary lens thing that Joe Wright seems to really like that I'm not <laughs> not so keen on um in yeah. in in that film but um the last good Joe Wright film <laughs> please make something good Joe although people like Cyrano did you like Cyrano oh uh, I didn't see it Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of I give. <laughs> a lot of people liked it, but I, um, I, I wasn't so keen. Um, but that was him sort of returning to more sort of period stuff after doing yeah. whatever the hell Hannah and um, Darkest Hour were. But um, Atonement is 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 sort of really the successor to to Pride and Prejudice, and I, yeah. I sort of see the two of them. It's quite strange, actually, because Kira Knightley in those two films is sort of interchangeable in my mind. It's almost like um, she grew up when she did Atonement, um, mm. maybe. Um, I, I, I have yeah. a yeah, I have a sort of spot for Atonement for a very silly reason is that it gave us Sasha Ronan. Mm. Oh, right. Well, exactly. <laughs> that well, alone. Speaking of sort of finding young actresses, um, we have several in yeah. in this film uh i mean carrie mulligan's very it, first film as, yeah. as as kitty and Tallulah riley um as um as mary yeah. 
then you also have Gina Malone playing um, Lydia, who's um, perfectly passable as a British um, girl, I would say, in this. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, what, what do you think about the casting? Let's start with the sisters, um, and this of course Ro- Ro- Rosamund Pike as Jane as well. well what, what are you, what are your your thoughts on on the casting of those characters? Yeah. So Rosamund Pike is delightful as Jane. She's she's delicacy incarnate. She and her and and Bingley, whose name whose the name of the actor now escapes me. Uh, also Simon Woods thank you yeah luminous like so solar (laughs) that Mm. they I I mean I think it's kind of what the books imply as well but they their love and their courtship and relationship is kind of just the drama associated to it is secondary like they're just so in their whole little bubble of happiness of uh, being you know at the end when the when when their parents well the Bennett's mom and dads uh, are talking and they're like oh well they'd be too kind and that's exactly it like mm-hmm. but they, they really really work well together um well Kira I, I just yeah I, I do love her as Lizzie I, I completely get your point I think it's a purely subjective thing but I was quite obsessed with her after after that film I love McFadden Mc, see I, I always had a, a very personal theory that I couldn't tell if it was through McFadden play like um acting choice as Darcy or the Lightning or Joe Wright or a bit of a combination, but I always found that he, he, my attraction to him grew throughout the movie, mm. even visually. Yes. Not throughout the character. Like I, I genuinely, genuinely think that the Lightning director and the DOP and Joe Wright made very conscious choices of how they would light him and how soft is his expression would look mm-hmm. as the film evolves because the first time you see him he looks so stern he looks so dark and obviously his face reflects that but also the, all the lighting he's made you have very sharp angle uh he's imposing in a way that is not very sexy he's very like you know both inward looking and imposing kind of mm-hmm. something you don't want to be here and then throughout the film his, his expression just opens up and the light is allowed on his face in a very different way. And obviously the very last scene when he walks in the field, I mean, like, it's, yeah. And obviously McFadden since, um, he, he talks, he, he talked a lot about how impactful playing Darcy was in, on his life and in a very negative way because right. of the attraction and the sort of, uh, you know, the character uh and everyone's like oh my god you're playing darcy and you know mm. and i don't think he lives it really well but obviously since then he's he's found success with succession uh and other films and you know he's done many many things but succession has been the his return to right. the, it's 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 how he has this sort of international stardom now which he, did, he certainly didn't have when he made this film yeah and I listened to him talk about acting choices for succession and how he modulates his voice, for example, to play with, uh, to to play scenes with Shiv, his wife, in the in the show, mm. and that really convinced me, not only that he's a great actor that I knew, but also that he really knows how to modulate his his face and and the slightest uh, expression to convey attraction in very different way. Because right. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that people might be attracted to 
he, how he looks in the first scene, you know, sort of stern, mysterious man of a Darcy, but yeah. he doesn't do it. Uh, so yeah, I'm I, a huge... I find it. I find watching Succession, it's actually quite hard mm. to see Matthew McFadden as Matthew McFadden because he's so different, and Tom is such an unattractive character in every conceivable way. He is an objectively gorgeous man, and yet <laughs> he his acting just makes him completely unattractive. Yes. Whereas in this, I mean one of the many obsessions of this film and the things that sort of most gripped me watching it um, is, are his hands. And I think people talk about his hands all the time because <laughs> the, there's these gorgeous close-up of him sort of flexing his hand at one point. Mm. And the power of that is oh, extraordinary. Yeah. It's like you 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 can feel that. So when we were talking about sort of sensuality and, and touch, the way that we're sort of looking at him and noticing these things about him in the same way that Lizzie is mm. beyond as you say he sort of gets more attractive as the film goes on because it's almost like there are more components to him as a figure um and the use of that bust I mean they create a, a bust for him that's sort of at Pemberley um mm. really just sort of reifies the fact that he is in some ways this sort of Greek god almost um, and of course they're in the temple of Apollo at Stourhead when, when he sort of makes his his initial proposal to Lizzie <laughs> and the rain is falling and it's um, symbolism much to write yeah. he's, an, he's an Adonis and that's absolutely fine I, 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 I'm more than happy to be swept away <laughs> by, by this Adonis um, yeah it really does bring out sort of the worst heterosexuality in me oh. it's terrible <laughs> <laughs> i mean yes but that's the thing like um uh as he grew softer and lets go of some sort of very very toxic masculinity thing which is not instantly due to him like as a guy it's just who he is right. as a you know taking care of his family and his sort of values imposed on him for by force of nature and society but as he grows fonder and softer that's where i'm the most uh, endeared and attracted to him yeah so you know it's sure very intense heterosexuality but with this sort of um almost uh, asterisk to it like the sort of more softer element but to go back to what you were saying about the the best of him um i it struck me again watching it that the whole film and initially is given away is given away by the title but uh is about them perpetually assuming things and not meeting, not not agreeing. It's it's yeah. a representation of <laughs> the fact that we don't know people the way they know us, and they will mm. not ever. You know, we never know the many many ways people see us and and understand us. And the film is just a build up to the moment where they'll finally meet and understand. And the moment where she is at Pemberley and she sees the best and that's probably the one big revelation where uh, uh aunt uh, say oh he's a handsome man and she's like yeah I, I dare say he is uh but that's the moment where she can dialogue with him without him present so once again she imposes on him but while he's not there so she's, she's sort of it's a reversal where you know up to that point she's she had prejudice and and uh, 
bias and she's projected things on him that he might not be because she was not right that's the moment where she finally fully changes but still again it's a statue it's not him and there's almost like a, a certain a sort of the film left for her to get to the point where she can do that with him talking to him mm. um yeah but no he's yeah yeah it's it's magical and i i really love the parents um, Donna oh Sutherland does a really good job at sort of debonair, kind of can't be asked version of a dad, but with loads of love for his daughter. That's um, so interesting. I think Donald Sutherland's casting is the worst part of this film. Interesting. I, because Mr. Bennett in the BBC version is so perfect. Um, and here he's this sort of. I don't know, I just don't buy Donald Sutherland as the character that he's playing. I don't believe that he belongs to his time period. I don't believe that he's British at all. Um, <laughs> maybe that's because of Donald Sutherland's sort of persona. Maybe maybe that's what it is. Whereas, which is in such stark contrast to Brenda Blevin, who, I mean, probably has the hardest job to follow because Alison Stedman is astonishing in the BBC version as, as, as Mrs. Bennett and but Brenda Blevin sort of brings this incredibly charming quality that she always had in sort of Mike Lee's films prior to to, to making this I mean especially in Secrets and Lies which is her performance in that film is one of my absolute favorites of of all time um and she is just so wonderful at capturing that that character um I, th- I think actually probably of all of the Bennets, she's she's the one who sort of captures the essence of that character so perfectly. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, it's her story. Um, it is about Mrs. Bennet's um, sort of um, flutterings, <laughs> flutterings and spasms all over her body, you know, yeah. her, her, her poor nerves. And I think that it's, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of Mrs. Bennet trying to, do what a mother in her position mm-hmm. had to do and the absolute terror of ruin of the, not just for herself yeah. but for her five daughters and her husband if if she doesn't successfully secure them in marriage i mean we 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 can sort of and her daughters at the same time sort of can mock that and mock the older generation for doing this but even though there's there's a lot of comedy to it, there's also a great deal of tragedy, and I think that's 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 also partly the sort of anxiety of the aristocracy that we were talking about at the, at the start that they really sort of draw out in the film from the book, which is mm. very much there and sort of maybe to some extent lost in some of the earlier adaptations is that her anxiety is very real, and you very much feel that, and I think that the the scene. Where they find out that Lydia has 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 run off with Wickham and mm. um, the potential ruin of the family is is incredibly emotional. Um, and you, and again, you, you, that's get, you really believe when 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 Mr. Darcy says, you know, this is very grave indeed. Yeah, you yeah. really believe that, even if you don't know anything about sort of class politics or 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 these and so yeah. on around this time, it yeah. lends that sort of gravitas to the situation. And the the way these scenes are played, like you know, um, 
I think there is still a limit of everyone else understand why it's grave and she's just worried about the marriage. But um, so you can sort of make being made to believe that she's a bit ridiculed. But then when mm-hmm. Lydia comes back, they have the lunch and everything and they leave mm-hmm. and she's standing by the window with Lizzie and she's scratching her hands mm-hmm. and, you know, she's really, really sad to see Lydia go. I think that's kind of where Joe Wright gives us the counterpoint of thing, what you were saying that is she's perpetually stressed and so so attached and caring for her daughters and very sad and you know they're all very close um and that's where you see that she's she's fighting the elements but it's she's Mm. not at all the uh, kind of ridicule with her nerves person that we might believe her to be Mm. yeah it's it's a very delicate scene actually especially in the context of a mother-daughter relationship where you know you have so much thrown at you and so much unsaid and things and competitions and stuff that you happens but then you have those tiny pockets of of truly knowing what each other think and mm. yeah. no i agree i completely agree what um, about tom Miranda, mr collins well i was going to, the, 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 we, we are really sort of just working through the characters at this point which is fine um i think i think that the next the next sort of pairing that I wanted to to talk a bit about is Mr. Collins and, and Lady Catherine de Burr. Um mm. I, I I like Tom Hollander. I mean, I, he's not as sort of greasy <laughs> and disgusting as um, Mr. Collins might otherwise come across, but he um, he he does embody this kind of sense of prejudice and right that that men have you know that he 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 spot he's like a vulture he sort of spies this house where there is potential ruin and mm. manages to sort of use his position to um i mean he 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 absolutely sort of wants jane and then is told and um mrs bennett says to him um, well, Elizabeth is sort of second to her both in in age and, and in beauty um which is very amusing um but his 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 sense of power is one of complete mockery into yeah. in in relation to to lady catherine and how um his sort of social position rests on her a woman who lives nearby and yet none of them have actually heard of lady catherine <laughs> um, yeah that's true yeah yeah it's very uh, funny that's where my non-Britishness comes through actually because I I always had a very unclear geographic situation of the whole thing right. <laughs> wondering like wait they can go here in a day but also they've not heard of her and she has this massive house that everyone should know about like yeah yeah but it's true that it shocked me that she would just take a carriage to go see them when I say her Lizzie goes to visit Charlotte and Mr Collins and she's just at the back of her carriage so I'm like okay it must be not too far <laughs> <laughs> well or maybe that or she just have a a very good uh, <laughs> sense of travel mm. but yeah I, I do left I, I do like again I think now I've seen this film so many times and in so many different moments of my life that it's hard for me to be entirely objective when no, talking about it because, again, Tom Molander was my first. But when I did see the uh, BBC adaptation, it's true that I was, as you were saying, uh, quite well, not shocked, but like uh, I realized, oh, 
oily and greasy and and honestly disgusting it can be more than ridicule um because in the film there's it's true that this dichotomy between his actual power over them by ways of succession and you know he can literally make or break their family but also he's presented as such a uh, minuscule small-minded uh, not very clever man that it's kind of perpetually not kind of taking him too seriously whereas I find that in the, the BBC adaptation it's so disgusting that you kind of the, the disgust stays and almost overcomes the uh, the ridicule and, and you do take him seriously yeah. um, A man reading you Thorndyce's sermons doesn't do it for you then you know, okay. Going <laughs> that, that route, uh, I have another uh, theory. I, I say it as if it, you know I've written the sermons, <laughs> but basically, I think that when you're first confronted with Persian prejudices, um, or at least when I was, I mm. wanted the Mister Darcy epic love story, right? And then I realized that having a Mister Bing with which is really sweet and soft and no drama would be amazing. <laughs> And then by now approaching age 30 and <laughs> longer in life, you're like, actually, you know what? Maybe Mr. Collins has a cousin. It's the most no. economically viable option. The one who can actually just sort of get you out of your... My bubble, yeah. As, as quickly as possible. Maybe um, he has a cottage in, in North London that I can in a bit and I have maybe, a, a yeah. parlour for my own use. Um. <laughs> But how, no. about, how about Judy Dench? What what do we make of her? Because I, 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 I'm, I'm not a fan of, no. of of Dame Judy, and I think that when I watch this film, I also think of um, her performance as Lady Bracknell in um, it, the importance of being earnest. The mm. uh, what uh, Colin Firth and Rupert Everett yeah. that she just seems to miss the point of these characters she seems to m- completely miss the eccentricity and the camp really of the characters mm. that she plays that there's a lot of there's a lot of comedy in Lady Catherine um, there's a lot of nastiness and I think she gets that nastiness right because she just she can play a bitch quite well but I um <laughs> I just don't buy it at all. Um, and I, I think, think it really is... lets down those scenes with her mm-hmm. character, mm-hmm. which are so good in the BBC version. I think she's not giving so much to play with, to be honest. I think um, a bit in the line of what she, what you were saying, there's this, the, the scenes, the scenes as, at Rosings, and I mean, raising at the house, not all like not the temple of Apollo, obviously, not the yeah. scene that, at the cottage where she's giving the letter, but the scene in the manor palace. I quite, uh, in French, we say it's like a, a hair on a soup. It comes and you're like, what's that? Like, it's, yeah. it's taking you a bit of the out of the rhythm. Uh, right. It serves a purpose, but not much more. And yeah. so, a bit like what we were saying of no one has heard about her. That's mm. kind of how I feel about those scenes. They're there, mm. but it's not like I've been expecting them because I don't know anything about her apart from when Mr. Collins comes. And so 
yeah, she she serves a purpose. She's an excellent actress, so she serves it fine. She's not going to do a necessarily awful job. But yeah, I think maybe that's also where the pacing and the speed at which the film goes um, comes comes out to be a problem I because think so. um, again, and, and Judy Dench only spent very little time on set. On, yeah, on set, she was barely. She literally did her scenes and left. It was very much a sort of phoned-in performance, and I think that. What do you think of the scene at the very end when, when she comes con- to, confront, to, see Liz- yeah. to see Lizzie? Um, I I I think that it gives Lizzie's decision to marry Mister Darcy a sort of levity that it might not otherwise have had. Mm. That that there is a sense of rebellion actually in her going with him, but it's not, it's not the easy option or even the expected option, mm. and it gives her an element of triumph of over sort of this old guard that's very set in its ways and in, in these sort of in its pride and prejudice, haha. Um, and I th- I think that that's what makes that ending so wonderful for her. And there's some okay. Donald Sutherland's best moment in this film, of course, is, the is end when he realizes how much Lizzie is in love with yeah. Mister Darcy and his and emotion his sort of... and his tears and his eyes and, and the hand over his mouth and he's just like isn't that so beautiful? His favorite daughter, and you know he, he called... has decided, yeah, you know he can see how happy she is. That's why I love him. I, this scene always makes me cry. Okay. Like. Yeah, because likewise. <laughs> and you know, he tried to say he says something like, "Well, if someone say a police or kitty, send them in." I'm kind of warmed up or whatever he says, and I just like, oh, yeah. But mm. yeah, I, I do like um, the scene at the end with uh, Judy Dench. I do. I've always had a bit of um, kind of. Again, maybe geographic m- misunderstanding of how she could vo- like voyage in the middle of the of the night, and obviously it's meant to represent how how crucial it is and how uh, outrageous it would be uh, that Miss Bennet would well Lizzie would um, marry Darcy, but she says like I've heard that blah blah blah, and we we don't really understand how she could have heard about this because we've only been shown Lizzie as being quite careful and secretive mm-hmm. even towards her sister. Like how would I've sure that you can sort of make implica- uh, the assumption that she has not spies, but like she's so well connected that she would have heard something and, right, and she knows really well what's going on in the neighborhoods. But I I always felt a bit like um kind of not not really buying that she would do all this mm. but with your with with your comments and what you just said it kind of sort of ties it together in a better well, it's way why it's, it's why it's important in the story i'm not convinced but you know as i say I'm, i don't really like judy dench's performance but mm. it, it it's why you can't excise lady catherine if you excise lady catherine you'd lose such yeah, an important the, part of yeah, the story yeah. Completely, um, and in a similar way, you know, as much as I adore the visually the scene when Liz is waking up and she's walking towards the fell, and suddenly Bass is coming. I'm like, there's no way in two hours' time he would have heard, you know, and and come and whatever. And I'm sure, like, put it on the romanticism of it, and I love it and I buy it. But realistically, I don't really. But 
What do you it's, think about the ending? As, as, as the British ending. Yeah. Okay. I, 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 I die. Like the ending, you mean when they kiss each other's hands and mm -hmm. well, that's, I mean, again, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit easy in the sense that again, as you were saying, uh, we've had a lot of shots on the hands and it's, it's only on evident that they would eventually come and finally touch each other and have this sort of such emotional and, and soft and, and, sweet kiss on the hands it's not a, a outlandish choice of direction but it's such an efficient one and such a, a sweet one and you have the sunset coming through and the dop did such a wonderful job with the mist and everything yeah uh no i i do love it but yeah i i don't want ever to talk about the american added scene at no. the end no, it's, we don't need that. And we certainly don't need um, P.D. James to do Death Comes to Pembley. Um, <laughs> are, are you familiar with it? With I've, I've heard of it. And there was a time, I think, if I had spoken better, like, you know, understood English better, right. when I first saw the film, I would have read the books and seen all the side things. But thank God I couldn't because it's not been translated in French. <laughs> no, have. of course. Um, and it shouldn't be. Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go there. I mean, maybe maybe that's just because I I like a happy ending too much. Maybe um, romantic old so and so that I am. I I just like the idea of them sort of living happily ever after. In this case, they've been for enough. You don't need you don't need Darcy to sort of drop dead five minutes later. <laughs> you know, poor Lizzie. Yeah, please just... let Lizzie. Please let Lizzie just like chill. <laughs> and and I kind of want them also obviously it's absolutely not realistic but not even to have children just to be in their little merry well, they're way. going to have to aren't they I suppose yeah, yeah no no exactly they can't, you can't sort get of... away from all of the sort of mores of the of the period um, <laughs> is there anything else that you wanted to, to talk about <laughs> in relation to the film we've sort of worked through the plot <sighs> and it's, it's casting and all of the different aspects of it I mean Again, I've, I, I, it might be the film I've seen the most in my life because mm. it's com become my comfort film. Uh, it's not the film I like. You know, uh, I, I absolutely agree that there are films that I find better, um, mm. but it's just the one that I come back to when I am sick or sad. It's my Ben and Jerry tub of a film, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's kind of become this sort of a. Uh, pretext. Oh, something shitty happened today. I'm gonna watch my two videos. Right? No, absolutely. So, but still, there are many things that still I, I, I see when I, I rewatch it and I understand better. And it spoke in the story and the film spoke, spoke, speak to me in ways that now it's kind of a mirror. I can see who I am and where I am in my life and my mm. day, depending on how yeah. I notice. So to, to answer your question, there are so many other things that I would want to, to see or talk about. But I think we've quite... Uh, Tied it up nicely. No, that's lovely. That I was going to say that's a really beautiful note to end on, and I I quite agree. I think it is perfect for for that purpose. Um, yeah, mm. thank you so much. This has been <laughs> absolutely you. wonderful. Oh, thanks. Uh, I hope to bump into you at the cinema again soon. <laughs> if you've got an idea for an article or a podcast, you can contact me via Twitter. My handle is at Lil Croft with three L's in Lil which is where I'll be posting about new writing and episodes. Do also get in touch if you fancy appearing as a guest and have a film you'd love to discuss with me. 
The Listen to Lillian podcast is available via the blog and all the usual channels, including Spotify and Apple, so don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. All that remains for me to say is thank you for listening and toodle pip.